pray and prepare our hearts and our minds, and I'll give you a moment in silence to prepare yourself, and then I'll close this out. Fathers, we prepare to open up your holy and divine word. Pray, Father, that our hearts and our mind are eager to seek after you. We give you praise, we give you glory, and we give you honor for the great God that you are. And Father, we just love you. We, we thank you that you loved us and that you sent your son for us. And it's by grace that, that we can gather together and be children of yours. So, Father, these words are the word of life. You said that man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so, Father, as we open this, these are that bread of life. This is the words that proceeded out of your mouth. And, and we take all of it in. You said every word. So we go from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation to cover everything that you've talked about. May this great chapter from two great prophets of yours give us some guidance and an example and encouragement for our life today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow, what a difference a week makes. If you remember last week, it was sunny, upper 80s, almost hitting 90. <laughs> and it was still hot, and we're thinking, man, when's this ever going to turn over? Well, typical Indiana weather, wait a week and it'll change, right? <laughs> because now we're barely able to bump 50. <laughs> so um, we got some cold nights coming up. So all you got to do is just wait a little bit and it'll change on us. You know, if you're there at Nehemiah chapter 2, the last couple of weeks we've been talking about the fall feasts. Uh, and in particular, the Feast of Trumpets. And we saw that Jesus himself fulfilled the first feasts. The uh, spring feast that was the Passover, the unleavened bread, and the first fruits, and how that in his death, burial, and resurrection, he fulfilled those things. And then there's a gap until the fall feast, and that's where we're in right now. And he is definitely going to come back and fulfill those as well. The fall feast was the Feast of Trumpets, and we have saw that Thessalonians says, and 1 Corinthians says that, on that day, the trump is going to sound and the dead in Christ are going to rise and to be with him. And so we want to be in Christ. We want to be ready for that trumpet's call because the next feast after that would be the feast of atonement. It's the day of atonement and that's the day of judgment. So we want to be ready for the trumpet's call because after that comes the judgment. So we want to be ready for it. And then the last feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. And that means dwelling with God. That's preparing us for the time when we have the trumpet, the day of judgment, and the day that we will fellowship with God forever. And so they are going to happen. But we talked about the Feast of Trumpets. And if it was to come this week, if you knew for sure that the Lord was going to be coming this week, would it change your priorities? 
would the way you think and the way you act and what you do and what you had your mind focused on, would it change anything if you knew that he was coming? Well, that's what these times are really to prepare us for so that we, we bring these thoughts to our mind and we reflect. I would think that if I knew that my Lord was coming in the next day or two, I would probably first begin to reflect upon my life. What's been happening and how I've been living. And I would take a moment to reflect upon that. And then, after I've reflected, if you're like me, you'll probably say just the same thing Paul did. What a wretched man I am. And I would probably hit my knees and put my face to the ground. And I would have warm tears streaming down my face and I would be praying and asking the Lord for His forgiveness and for the grace that comes through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, because I am not worthy. But you know what? You don't stay there. And that's what we're going to find out today. When you've reflected upon your life, and when you've took it to God in prayer, and when you have repented, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And then we are to rejoice. It's a time of joy and of fellowship because we have now been forgiven. We have fellowship with Him. We're able to walk in the light as He is in the light and have fellowship one with another as the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse us from sin and unrighteousness. So that's what I want us to see today is this cycle of reflection, repentance, And rejoicing. Don't forget the rejoicing. Too many folks. And I've had conversations even this week with people. Who seem to think that I've made bad decisions. I've. Man. The way my life is. I often wonder if God can ever forgive me. And. Boy I want to pull my hair out and say. That's why Christ died. You can see I've pulled it out a lot. (laughs) with, with, With that. Because. You are forgiven. And when He forgives you, we are to put those things behind and press forward in our march towards eternal life with Christ. Don't be in a guilt complex that keeps you depressed, that keeps you down, that weighs you down and thinks, I can't go on because I can never get rid of that. Yes, it's been blotted out. It says it was blotted out and forgiven. And I want you to see that today in what we're going to talk about. So if you're there with me, Nehemiah chapter 2, as we get ready to begin. I want to introduce you to a couple of God's Old Testament men, Ezra and Nehemiah, if you've never heard of them. They both lived about the same time. Our story is going to take place in about 443, 444, 445 B.C., right around in there. And you say, how do you know that? Well, look at verse 1 there. It came to pass in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. And now... I had not been before time sad in his presence. The great thing about the word of God is it's precise. It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes of Persia. And historians and the history bears forth that Artaxerxes ruled 
from 464 to 423 B.C. And so if it was in the 20th year of his reign, we're right there around that 444 mark. So we can tell exactly when these things were taking place. This is about 90 years after Belteshazzar that we studied a couple of weeks ago from Daniel where he saw the hand riding on the wall. You remember that? And how that it says you've been weighed in the balances and you've been found wanting and the kingdom is going to be taken from you this day. You remember that? And that night the Persians came in and Babylonian handed over the kingdom and he was executed and Cyrus took over. And Darius the king. So that was about 90 years ago with what we're studying today. It was shortly after that that Cyrus, Daniel had showed him the scroll that Isaiah had written that says, I call you by name, Cyrus. You are my person. And you are going to come in and do this. And Cyrus became a believer in God because he had pointed it out 150 years before that that he would be there to take over. And he made a decree and he freed the people of Israel, the captives, to be able to go back to their land. And this is 90 years later and they haven't went back to their land. There's still most of them there. Some are in the country, but the walls of the city have just been in ruined. The gates to the city are still burned off. And Nehemiah's brother came to him in chapter 1 and said, Our homeland is deserted. Our tombs are a wreck. The walls in the city is in in shambles. And it pained him. And that's why we find in chapter 2 here that he says, I hadn't been before time sad in the presence of the king. He must have been a jovial fellow. He must have been good natured. We find in verse 11 of chapter 1 that he was the cupbearer to the king. That surprises me, because why would someone who had, from the children of captivity, escalate to such a high position? That was a position of prestige and power and trustworthiness, because at this time, the kings were often assassinated. Often, poison was snuck in, and the cupbearer was the one who was trusted to be in charge of the king's drink and food, and he would actually come out And taste of the things that he was pouring out first. And the food that they were serving first to show that he had surveyed it. That it's trustworthy. And you can eat it, O king. But he goes into the king's presence now. And he serves him his glass of wine and presents it. And then the king looks down at him and he says, Why are you sad? I can tell that you have not been sick. That this thing that I see in your face is not from any kind of a sickness. So what's going on with you? And immediately Nehemiah says, it made me afraid. Very afraid. You know why? Because if the king noticed something was up and it wasn't because I was sick, he might be thinking I'm up to something. And so he bows and he says, O king, live forever. That's a common greeting, but that means I'm on your side. I don't. I want any kind of harm towards you. He said, live forever. But why I am sad today is because I have news that my family, the, my home place 
is a shambles and a wreck still 90 years later after we've been set free. And so the king asks him, well, what would you like for me to do about it? And if you look up there, I think it's in verse 4. You ought to underline that one in your Bible. Because it says there that he went quickly to prayer to God. And I want you to know if you've got a problem, if you've got something that's making you upset, if you've got something that's making you sad, that's troubling your heart, if you've got a big decision to make in life, this is pretty good advice. Take it to God first. Go to Him in prayer over what you want first. Don't take it under your own accord, but take it to Him first and see what He directs you to do. And so it says, Nehemiah said, I prayed to the God of heaven about what this should be. And then he said, King, what I would like for to happen is to get a letter from you so that I will be safe as I go on this journey. But I would like to go back and begin to rebuild the city. And I would like to have a letter of safety saying that you are backing this. And then I'd like to have a letter to Asaph, the guy who takes care of your royal forest. I would like to be able to have some trees to use as wood for the gates of the city to rebuild it. And the king, it says in verse 8, I want you to look. What happens when the prayers of a righteous man, you know what the scripture says? They availeth much. Verse 8 says, And the king granted me according to the good hand of God who was upon me. You see... You go fervently in prayer. If it's within the will of God, the hand, the good hand of my God will now be upon me. And he goes and he sets forward to go about the work. And you know what? We don't go two verses that we don't find something. You know what we find? What happens usually when you win a spiritual victory in life? Opposition. (laughs) Something's going to try to take the wind out of your sails every time you win a spiritual victory. You... Don't be surprised anymore when things happen in your life, especially when you're riding high. I see every one of the prophets of God, every one of the people of God, when it talks about they won a great victory, the next thing that you usually see is opposition coming forward. Expect it. Because the dark side does not want you to be happy and prosper in the Lord and to tell others about that. They want you to be miserable and think that God's not with you when in fact He is. So we don't get two verses in this till we're introduced to Sanballat and Tobias. And Tobiah and Sanballat begin to laugh and to mock and it says that they are exceedingly upset in their heart that somebody would want to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and think something good toward the children of Israel. Isn't that something? They have always come under fire from the devil and his minions. Always trying to keep Israel down. These men come up against them now and start doing a bunch of stuff. First, they're just mocking. And then you get to chapter 4 and they're talking and mocking and laughing at what Nehemiah is going to get ready to do and that he's going there. And one of them even makes a comment that says, Ha! If they try to rebuild the wall, they don't know what they're doing. It'll be so shaky that if a fox jumps upon the wall, it'll probably all fall down and break. And they were laughing and having a good time. 
But then it says, when they saw that Nehemiah was serious, and that they were, the children of Israel were actually beginning to rebuild the wall, they got very indignant. And they started making plans to go to war. So what happens is, is Nehemiah goes, and at first he doesn't say anything to the people of Judah and Israel of what he's doing. And he circles for a few days around the city looking at it, taking notice of the walls, the gates, the foundation. And then he calls a meeting and he tells them that the good hand of my God is upon us. He wants us to do this and we have the backing of the king. And he begins to tell them what the plan is to rebuild our hometown and to make it good for God. And it says they all became agreed in one spirit. It says they were renewed in spirit. Wouldn't that be great here? If all of our churches and all of the people of God could be in unity. And if we could say let's make this community great for God. Let's make this place a great place to be and God to be glorified. Wouldn't it be great to have a renewed spirit not only within ourselves but within the community as well. I pray for that to happen. But now they conspire these men do to go against them. And to set war against them. And then it says this. In Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 17. It says that it became so bad. That they had to work every one of them. One hand laying the bricks. And one hand on their weapon. But they still persevered. And I want to tell you something. Don't let anything swerve you from the work of God that you're supposed to do. Don't let threats. Don't let mocking. Don't let anything stand in the way of what you're supposed to do. If you got to, put one hand to the work and one hand upon the word of God. Because it's your sword, isn't it? It's sharper than any two-edged sword. So keep one hand on the word of God and one hand on your work and continue to go forward and do not let it uh, stop the progress of God wants you to do in your life in service for Him. And then it says that they set their heart to do the work. Yeah, that's great. Let's all purpose that in our hearts today. To set our hearts and ourselves to doing his work in this community. And then it says that as they they did that. Chapter 6 verse 15 says this. They finished the work in 52 days. Wow. When God's on your side, miracles happen, doesn't it? I mean, it, it shouldn't have. It should have took a lot longer than that to rebuild everything. But look, in 52 days... They were able to rebuild all of that. Now they needed to do something else. They needed to repopulate the city. Because it's no good to have a city and to have the walls if nobody's living in it. People can come in and overrun it again. So now they have to take a census. They repopulate it. They start doing all of that. And then that brings us to the real section that I want us to study today in chapter 8 of Nehemiah. This is where Ezra begins to get into the picture. Because, see, they were contemporaries. They were working together. Nehemiah was about the physical thing. He wanted to rebuild the wall. He wanted to to rebuild that as something towards God. But Ezra, the priest, the scribe, 
He wanted to rebuild the spiritual aspect of the people. He wanted to be rebuild the walls of God spiritually around the people. And so now he's been working spiritually underneath of all of this while the people were working physically out there on the walls. And so now he comes in and that brings us to chapter 8. And I want us to read this wonderful chapter. And I'm going to have to go to the Bible for this. Because this is a whole chapter here that we're going to talk about. Nehemiah 8, if you're there. This is so beautiful. All the people, all of them, they gathered together as one man. Oh, isn't that marvelous? In the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses out which the Lord had commanded to Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and the women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Hold on a minute. Why is God being so precise of when they started reading that book? You remember what we've been talking about the last two weeks? Feast of Trumpets. Leviticus 23, verse 23 and 24. God said, Upon the first day of the seventh month will be a holy day to you. It will be the day of the blowing of trumpets. So isn't it amazing how God works that the wall is rebuilt in 52 days? And when it is and they want to celebrate and they bring out the word of God, guess where Ezra the scribe is reading? Book of Leviticus. He's reading the book of Leviticus. We're going to find that out in a moment. And it was the first day of the seventh month. And so he's reading this. And I want you to see that all the people gathered together, not just men and women, but children who had understanding, who could listen and hear. I don't know about you, but that's probably age about six or seven and up, we put them in school at that time, don't we, to start learning and understanding and having ears to hear. So these people were here, and it says it was the first day of the seventh month. And then verse 3 says, Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning till midday. You know that was six hours? For six hours... Those people stood as one man, even the kids, to listen to the word of God. It says, from morning till midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra stood on a platform of wood, which was made for that purpose, And beside him at his right hand stood a bunch of guys. Not even going to try to pronounce them. And then at his left hand stood a bunch of other guys. And then verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was standing above all the people when he opened it. And when he opened the word of God, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord his great God. And all the people answered with one voice and said, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. See, it's okay to do that. 
It's okay to praise God and to reach out for Him and say amen and to worship Him. And they were all doing that and then they bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then these other guys and the Levites, they helped the people to understand because you see everyone, all the people are gathered. They don't have a microphone and amplifier system. They've got to hear Ezra here, and then people were at the edge of that, then listening and then sharing it with the next group and all out. They were helping them to understand and hear what was going on out through there. And they helped them to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. And Ezra and the people who were repeating it read distinctly from the book of the law of God. And they gave sense and helped them to understand the reading. Nehemiah the governor and Ezra the priest and the scribe and all the Levites who taught the people said this day is holy to you. I want to pause right here for a moment in our reading of this chapter. When we started today we talked about that if we knew the feast was coming and we knew that the trumpet call meant that the day of Christ's arrival and if it was going to be this week what we would do We said that it would probably be a time of reflection, repentance, and rejoicing. And that's what we're getting ready to see here. They were listening to the word of God being taught. They're going to, in a minute, be repentful. Right now, they're attentive and they're reflective. Every ear is listening to what's going on. They got a desire to draw nigh unto God. They're all there as one accord. We've done something great. We rebuilt the wall. The good hand of the Lord is coming back upon us. And then they start hearing the words of the law. And you know what they're going to find out? For a long time, they ain't been doing what the word said. Life happened. They went into captivity because they hadn't done the word of the Lord. But now they're just beginning to understand that. Life has happened. They've been far away. Something drew them all back together to put their mind and their purpose back towards God. And now all of a sudden, they're beginning to actually hear what God said with open ears and attentive hearts to what He wants them to do and what He wants them to be and what they're supposed to be in Him. And then, how do I respond to that? As they're reading and they realize what's going on in their life, how, how do they respond? And I know the reading in Leviticus as they go through here and look, as we go back through verse 9. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. So they've come to the point where it says the first day of the seventh month is a holy day and it's a holy convocation. And guess what's happened? They're in a holy convocation, a gathering together upon that day. And they all begin to weep as they have reflected that we haven't been doing that. And they begin repenting and weeping. And he tells them, stop weeping. This day is holy. Don't weep or mourn anymore because all of the people wept when they heard the words of the law. The word is doing what it's supposed to do. The Lord said in the book of John, he said that when the spirit comes, his job is to convict of sin, righteousness and judgment. 
of sin because you don't know me. Of righteousness because when you do know me now you will know what you're supposed to do going forward. And of judgment because yes one day that trumpet call is going to sound. So the Holy Spirit's job is when you begin to read the word of God. And you listen with an attentive ear. And you allow it to sink in. We are supposed to react in the proper way. We're not supposed to react with, well, that makes me upset. I don't want to have to do that. We've not been doing that, so why should we have to do it any longer? Why should we reinstitute these things? No, the attitude that I see from the people when they are pricked in their heart, just like in Acts chapter 2, when Peter stood up on that first day of the church and said, this same Jesus that you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. They didn't try to do an uprising against him because it says they were pricked in their hearts. And then they replied with a proper response, men and brethren, what should we do? That's what they are doing here. They are initiating a proper response to the word of God when it pricks your heart and the spirit works upon the heart. And they are weeping and mourning and wondering what we're to do. So Ezra tells them and Nehemiah tells them, go. Stop weeping. Stop it. Go your way. Eat the fat of the land. Drink the sweet drink. Send portions to those who don't have. For this is a holy day and we want everyone to have the opportunity to celebrate. So if they don't have something, give them some of yours so that everyone can rejoice before the Lord for this day. For this day is holy and you have now found out That you are returning back to your God. It's now a time of rejoicing. You spent your time reflecting upon what you've done. We've been far away from them for a long time. We're going to see that in just a second. We've not done right. But you know what? You went in repentance to the Lord. You weep before Him. Now it's a time of rejoicing. Not staying in that weeping mode. Now it's a time to rejoice. Eat, drink, send portions to those that don't have enough to prepare. This day is holy unto our God. Do not sorrow any longer. Why? For the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now I'm going to close with that one in a minute. So underline that. We're coming back to verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So look what happens then. Look what happens after this. They all go. They all go and rejoice. And they do what they were told to do. They told them to be still. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way. To eat. To drink. To send the portions. And to rejoice greatly. Because now they understood the words. That was declared unto them. Isn't that great? When you begin to understand. That not only. Did I leave God? But when I come back to God, he says, dry your tears. Rejoice. What I see in this passage is the Old Testament version of the prodigal son. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm getting ahead of myself. I got to stop doing that. That's going to be as we close. Okay, look what happens now in verse 13 as they begin to continue on. In this story. 
On the second day, so this is the next day, after they went and rejoiced as they told him to do. On the second day, the heads of the fathers and the houses of the people with the priests and the Levites, they gathered to Ezra the scribe. Why? Why did they come back the next day? They wanted to hear more. They were so thirsty for the word of God and they just found out they hadn't been doing what they were supposed to do and they said, we want to learn more. Tell us what we're supposed to do. So they all came back to Ezra and they found written in the law, verse 14, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now I got to be careful how I pronounce that because my wife whenever I was telling her about this, she kept saying, Feast of Booze. And I was like, not booze. And she said, well, put the T-H in there then. It's not booze. So it's booths. So the Feast of Booze was commanded to them during the seventh month and that they should announce it and proclaim it to everyone in the city and all the surrounding of Jerusalem. Go to the mountain Bring your olive branches and your oil trees and the myrtle branches and the palm branches and branches of leafy trees to make booths. Why? Because as it is written, they knew now, they were beginning to see things in the word of God that they had never knew before and that it was time that we started getting back to God. Our hearts are pricked. So what else does it tell us to do? And he's saying, wow, we're supposed to dwell in booths too. That's the tabernacles that comes at the end of the month. Why? That prepares you. That was to remind them of where they had been and where they were going. When the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the Lord started telling them as they go into the promised land, they've been wandering 40 years. And he says, when you go into the land, I've already prepared it for you. It's a place of grace. It's a place where you're not going to have to work. I've already had them planting your trees, planting your vineyards, planting everything for you. But when you go in, I want you to remember every year where you came from, where you've been, but where I took you. So to know that I took you into the promised land, I want you to dwell a week in these makeshift tents, these booths out of leaves. Why? Because it grounds me again. It doesn't let me get up on my high horse that it's all about me. But no, it's all about God and His grace and where He's taken me from. That He brought me from the land of captivity and sin, took me through my wilderness journey, and He's taken me to the promised land. And it's a reminder of where I'm going each year. So, he's, so they all went out, it says in verse 16, and they brought with them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in the courtyard or in the courts of the house of God in the open square of the water gate. And that's not Nixon's water gate. This is, this is a different one. And in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. And then look at verse 17. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from their captivity, they made booths and they sat under the booths Now, man, this right here is great. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. But now, there was very great joy and gladness. Since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. That's right after Moses. That's like 1300 B.C. We're in... 
444 B.C. For almost 900 years, they have not done what they were supposed to do. You think that you got problems? Boy, look at what I've done. It says that for 900 years, they've forsaken God. They haven't done what they were supposed to do. But you know what it says they did? They rejoiced in the fact that now they knew what they were supposed to do. They had reflected. They repented. And now it's a time for rejoicing. Because it didn't matter what you have not done for 900 years. What matters is what you do from this point forward. When you hear the word of God. And you realize what it says for your heart. And that Jesus has forgiven you of everything through his blood on the cross and the work that he did there, that it don't matter what's in the past, even 900 years of forsaking him and never doing nothing, it says now they could rejoice because they had actually set their hearts and their minds on doing what the Lord had wanted them to do. So now as we begin to close, take you back to that verse 10. Back to verse 10. Well, I got way out of line here. He said, go. Eat the fat of the land. Drink the sweet drink. Rejoice. Doesn't matter where you've been. What matters is the decision you're making right now and where you're going from here. And what I started to tell you was this whole thing I see is... The prodigal son in the Old Testament. Because you know what happened with the prodigal son? He went to a faraway country, didn't he? He wanted to forsake his father. Didn't want to have anything to do with him. But when he was in the far country, you know what it says? He came to himself. And when he came to himself, he said, Isn't it much better at my father's house even to be a servant than to stay in this pig pen and eat slop with the hogs? And so he returned. And what I find is, is that as he's coming, what did it say about the father when he saw his son where? A long way off. He was looking for him. He was waiting for him. He was ready for him, wasn't he? And he didn't say, you got to make all of this penance. You got to do all of this stuff. No. What does he? He runs to meet him. Is that not the joy of the Lord? I want you to notice in verse 10, that it's not our joy. It's not anyone else's joy. It says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He runs to meet us whenever we return to Him. He runs. And I want to tell you about that word joy. That word joy is that right there in the Hebrew. And every once in a while, i got to bring this up just because of how amazing God is. The word for Kevin, that's there is three syllables. And in the Paleo-Hebrew, when God made it, every one of the letters meant something. That's a fence. And the D is a door. And the H is a hey or a look. And so they all mean something and it has a message behind it. The joy of the Lord. What it means is, it comes to meaning that joy is is because there's a door in the fence. Behold, look. Look at the door in the fence. You say, why is that important? The fence does what? It separates. 
It keeps some things in and it keeps other things out. But if there's a door in the fence, then there's a way in and out, isn't there? Guess what Jesus said in John chapter 10? He said, I'm the door. Anyone that enters in the the sheepfold by any other way is a thief and a robber. But he that enters in through the door is my friend. And he's came through me and now has fellowship with God the Father. And so what he's saying there in Nehemiah, he's looking forward to that door which was Jesus Christ that forgives us of our sins. And what it says there, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You don't have strength on your own. It's his joy and his strength that brings you into a relationship with him. And Jesus is the door. And you enter in by the way of the door. So as our worship team comes on up, I want you to see that today. I want you to see that even in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, God had a door. And it was all centered around his son, Jesus Christ, who's the fulfillment of these feasts and these different things that were memorials, remembrances. And this one is here during our life. It was to remind us to reflect upon ourselves and our relationship with God because the trumpet's going to sound. And when we do, and we repent that there's a door that leads to the Lord. You've already been forgiven. You've entered in through the door, through Christ's forgiveness of you. And the joy of the Lord now becomes your strength. Don't stay in a lost relationship. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, you've never been in Christ, then please make that decision today. And after you have faith, if you've never done that and you've not named him as Savior, after your faith, you are saved by grace through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift of God. And then you say, I want to fulfill the rest of those things that the Lord asked me to do in baptism. Then come on up. If you are already in Christ, but as we reflect upon our life and we repent of those things know that now is a time of rejoicing everyone should leave this place today rejoicing knowing that the joy of the lord is our strength and that we have a door that enters into his presence for that so let's sing this song